I'm Dr. Kay Eyre. Welcome to the Trauma Informed Education Podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Joanna Schwartz. Joanna holds a Master of Education and a Master of Counseling with a concentration in holistic studies. Joanna is the founder of Toolbox for Teachers, an organization that provides workshops on the topics of mental health in schools, social and emotional learning trauma-informed education, and mindfulness. Joanna's interest in providing professional development for educators comes from her experiences as a K-8 teacher in Philadelphia, her years of mindfulness practice, and experience as a child and family therapist. Joanna has written The Teacher Toolbox for a Calm and Connected Classroom, Teacher-Friendly Mental Health Strategies to Help You, and your students thrive. This book was published in 2021. Joanna is interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and me. We hope you find this conversation useful and interesting. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Govind Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. K. Hi Kay. Hi Govind, how are you today? Good, thank you. Um, we haven't done one of these in a little while. No, we um, haven't. And um, yeah, just for people listening, we've had some delays with getting episodes out. So thank you to everyone who's written in asking about our episodes. We've just had some production delays and we should be able to get the new ones out very shortly. But we're very excited today to have Joanna with us. Um, Joanna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Right. Well, we might dive right in. Um, so, Joanna, this podcast is for educators. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you about your own educational experience in primary school, high school and college and, and, and how that sort of influenced the work you do today. Sure. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind was I started out going to a public school in a very working class a uh, sort of poor working house class rural school in the middle of Pennsylvania, which is in, um, in the Northeast in the United States. And um, then I became sort of a scholarship kid and went to a private school for, um, for high school. So um, I feel like what happened was I had my public school friends who kind of kept me grounded. And then I you know, got to visit the worlds of my rich friends who went to this, this private school. And that, that kind of gave me, it broadened my perspective. But I think what led to, led me sort of to do the work that I'm doing now is that when I was in high school, I was having kind of a rocky time at home with my family. And when I, um, I, I guess when I would go to school, my teacher just sort of saw me as a spacey kid. Um, but later when I started working in the field of counseling, I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't that I was spacey. It was that I was dissociated and, and, uh, I was just trying to struggle, you know, just trying to make my way through. So, you know, the, 
the work that I do, I think I'm really trying to help teachers to understand that the behaviors that we're seeing, the appearances that we're seeing are just that. They're just the appearance. And that we, if we can just peer underneath, we can we can see what's really going on for that kid. And um, so, yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, often a common story with a lot of, I guess, they're often straddling two worlds and have a lived experience of what it's actually like to not completely fit into a classroom and, and, and be able to do everything that's expected of us um, in schools um, back when we were going through. Is that kind of where your interest in teacher and student mental health comes from, Joanna? What, what else sort of contributed to your interest? In you know, I started teaching when I was about 21 and I just thought it was like the most magical place, the classroom, but I felt like there was something that I was missing. And I couldn't figure out why in some classrooms you would walk in and the kids were so engaged and there was like this amazing alchemy happening between them and the teacher. And then in other classrooms, it was miserable. So um, I ended up going back to school to be a counselor. I had an amazing mentor and I felt like he showed me the power of relationships. And I felt like, you know, so much has been given to me. Now I got to give it back. So I went and I studied um I went and got a degree in counseling with a concentration in holistic studies. Um, and then there's more to that story, but I can stop there for now. No, that's fine. Um, feel free to keep talking as long as you want. Um, it, it's interesting um, looking at your work, Joanna, just thinking about um, teacher mental health, because I, I think some of what we do in the trauma-informed space, I, I guess a big part of it is around building teacher capability. Um, and really making the links between how teachers are, you know, we are within ourselves and how we think and how that's actually related to, you know, the outcomes for the students. Um, can you can you tell us about it? It's a relatively new area in terms of teacher mental health. Can you share the ways in which you're looking after the mental health needs of the students and, and, and you know, how that can kind of improve the quality of the sort of instructions? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, what I was, I, you know, the second, the end of the story sort of like flows into what you're asking me, because what happened was when I got out, when I finished um, my master's, I started working in community mental health and I had students who were in schools. And they were my clients. So I would come into the schools and I would watch these kids and I would see them. I had done family therapy with them at home and now I'm following them into the classroom and I'm walking in with the knowledge of what's happening with their mental health. But then I would see the teacher and I would imagine what was going in mind, going on in the mind of the teacher because I'd been the teacher. Um, and then I was thinking, OK, if only we could just get this teacher to see how nuanced and complex his or her own world is and how he or she can change their mindset, take care of their own mental health so that they can be there for this kid who's also walking in and colliding with them. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'll just throw it over to Kay if she had any comments. I, I, I guess one of the common experiences we've got is um, around you know, I think when we were delivering a lot of training, Kai and I, right in the beginning, we were facilitating speakers to come in and whatnot. And often, you know, teachers would come into these sessions and ask questions. And and if you knew the teachers, you'd know sometimes, oh, that's not actually about any of the kids in their class. <laughs> it's about like things that are happening in their own families. And it was an interesting point to then think about how it is that we 
offer training and promote learning about things like trauma because I think, you know, we talk about a professional context of understanding these things, but there's often a personal context. And I think that makes it more, you know, really brings it to life in a way, doesn't it, in terms of really empathizing with maybe what the students are going through in some ways. And I think, Govind, on that and further to what Joanna said, the difficulty we have in education, I know in Australia, is that traditionally you're taught that you teach, well, in, in I'm going back a little bit, in the old days it was it was common that we were taught, no, 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 you take the personal out of everything. You're the teacher. Everything was, you know, the child's there to do as they're told. You had a punitive mentality. You don't share anything about yourself. It's none of the children's business. If their behaviour is disruptive, don't take it personally. It's not personal. Move on. You know, we had this really... Um, really uh, clear disconnect of that was good teaching to remain disconnected because you are the teacher, they are the children and normal life doesn't have a part of this. It's the teaching. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, so it's quite difficult for teachers, I think, in the main, especially a lot of um, teachers because our population of teachers are, in the main middle 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 aged, so they've come from that type of training. That it's really hard to go. Oh, I can be a human being, and that's super important. Be a human yeah. being. You know, I, I always when as you were talking, I had this image of you know the teachers that you're talking about, and I'm thinking, you know, it's almost like the teachers are. You know, did you ever do that race where you have to balance an egg and a spoon on a and spoon, run the yeah, egg and spoon race? Yeah. Teacher, you know, is trying to get from point A to point B, and on the sidelines are these people yelling at the administration, and you know, uh, they're do saying you got to get, yeah, you got to get the kids to this point. So the teacher has the spoon with the with the egg in it. You know, they're trying to balance their own personal life, their own, you know, their own mental health, and they're trying to get this team of kids behind them across the finish line with their own little eggs in the spoon. And sometimes the eggs are falling out. And But the teachers are still trying to get them to the finish line in time. And I think, I mean, I think there's something just so stressful and pressing about feeling that you have to get the kids from here to there. And anything that, anytime someone's egg falls off their spoon, you know, you have to stop and help them pick it up. And do you get where you're supposed to go um, in time? Very I'm difficult. Sure. And that, that hasn't changed much at all, has it really? We're still still all trying to collect the data and get them all over the line so so that we get the numbers that we're told we need to have. Yeah, and so that we cover all the material that, we, that we're supposed to cover. I remember my great partner saying to me this year, like we would meet once a week and we would plan what we were going to teach that week. But I would always, I felt like I would stop and I would say, but, you know, we would stop and we would say like, but how were the kids doing? And did you notice that this one didn't come? And did you notice that, you know, this one seems upset? And I remember my great partner saying, but I feel like I'm held hostage by the scope and sequence and the timeline. <laughs> like I can't, I'm held hostage and I can't really reach the kids in the way that I like to because I have to finish, you know, I have to cover all this material. Therefore, your mental health as a teacher is way, way back in the distance, isn't it? Because the focus is constantly on how do I help the children? Not how do I help myself? Right, and even, even like right, and even in teacher preparation programs, you know, at least at least here in the United States, 
we're taught how to, you know, we're taught what to teach, not who to teach or who is teaching. We're taught what to teach. And so that's when you come in, you come in and teach the, to the, the topics, the subjects. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And I think um, I was thinking about your new book, Jonah, about, um, you know, the teacher toolbox and calm and connected classrooms. And I was thinking from our discussions, often calm and connectedness I think calm starts with the teacher and connectedness requires a certain sense of bringing yourself isn't it to the a classroom as well I I agree except I would interject that I actually think it really in, in school you know I, I really feel like the administrator having been around teachers so long and having been a teacher myself for for my almost my entire adult life much of my adult life you know the, the administrator really does set the tone in the school that the teacher is walking in and paying attention to, you know, and, and if the teacher feels supported, then that teacher is going to walk into their classroom and they're going to say, good morning, everyone. It's so great to be here with you. How are you today? Just like the administrator did, you know, for them. When I first started teaching, I was going to, I, you know, it makes me think of, I had this principal, you know what she used to do? <laughs> She used to leave a handwritten note next to our sign-in sheet every morning. So when the teachers would walk through the office, you know, you would sign in and there would be this note from the principal and it would say, it would say something like, good morning, teachers. Happy Tuesday. I'm so glad that you're here. I know you're going to make a difference in the lives of the children today. And you go like, yes, thank you. And that's what you need. And off you go floating to your classroom. And, and there you are now in a much better mood. And you're ready to, you know, you're ready to be there with those kids. Little tiny thing like that. Trauma-informed approach. Free. Easy. Go ahead. Absolutely, Jana. And, and I think that's a really important point. I think with part of the discussions we've had in this sort of space more recently is this our idea around putting excessive responsibilities on teachers and not sufficiently acknowledging like the systems around them and even the systems around um, people in leadership even you know I think it goes mm -hmm. even broader than that but I, I was I was wanting to get a sense of you know what other kind of key elements do you think are important in creating that trauma sensitive or trauma-informed classroom? Um, you know the, the element that stands out to me um, you know, as like we're talking about is, is the teacher's own social, you know, the teacher's own emotional regulation. But, you know, uh, Bruce Perry says, you know, you want to have a trauma-informed school, you want to have a school where kids are taken care of, take care of the teachers. When you have huge class size, when you're walking in, you know, I've, I've had class sizes, th 33 kids, you know, no help. You know, I think there's, I think that, if you want to have a trauma-informed school, you have to take care of the people who are caring for the kids. Um, I think that's, for me, I feel like that's really where it starts and where it ends. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting way to kind of think about, you know, we talk a lot about social-emotional learning, and it's gained a lot of traction, I think. And, and of course, I, I know... You know, I think there's been an increasingly compelling argument being made about why, what a big part that plays in just academic learning as well, social emotional learning. And and from what you're saying, it almost sounds like that social emotional learning needs to start with the administrator. It needs to start with the teachers in terms of their own kind of position, you know, with the work. Yeah, you know, there was this there was this study. I um oh, I don't want to misquote it. I believe it's Pam Grossman. Um, at, at Penn. And, you know, she wrote this study and she said, 
um, that teachers are doing uh, the, the content of the work is so intensely social that it's comparable to a psychologist or to a clergy member, you know, and she looked at the way that the clergy are trained and she looked at the way psychologists are trained. And then she looked at the way that teachers were trained and she said, oh, my gosh, clergy and psychologists are having all of this hands on practice um, just with social interactions. People are coaching them. You know, when I was a therapist, I could call my supervisor many times a day and say, I just had this session. I'm not sure what happened between the client and I. And what do you think? Um, and then they were looking, anyway, what she said was, no one is doing this practical sort of pro-social skills training for teachers. Um, so I, I actually try to do that in the trainings that I have with teachers. But yeah, it's so important. We're walking into this job. Some of us have a, you know, some people come in with all of these social emotional competencies just because the way they grew up and their family and and who they are. But other of us, we have to learn them. And that's okay. We can teach them. Yeah, I, I will throw it over to Kay. I'm sure she has something to say about it. No, you're right. Keep going. It's interesting. Yeah. One of the things I was just reflecting on uh, that little bit you were talking about, Nian and Joanna, about how we come in with these competencies. And, and it's quite interesting, this idea of when we enter these new systems or new schools and places like that, it's almost like we've got to unlearn and relearn a lot of these things that we don't kind of trust that kind of gut feeling and, and that kind of personal aspects of that's so important in being able to connect with the students this idea of bringing yourself to work I think and 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 so I think even being able to tap into your own social emotional learning and with the training you offer the teachers there's some level of you know being able to reflect on both those aspects both the professional and the personal aspect of things Um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I'm thinking that, you know, when we do, when, you know, I have my teachers pair up and they do reflective listening and it's, um, it feels to the teachers almost so, um, uh, it feels like it makes a lot of sense to them, but it almost feels unnatural to them sometimes to practice um, to your point, Kate, before, you know, when when we were saying that the teachers have to get from here to there. And when you ask them to stop and slow down and really listen reflectively to each other, they go like, oh, yeah, this can make a huge difference in my classroom. Um, uh, yeah, I want to try to do this a little bit more. Uh, it's a nice permission for them. Yeah, because they don't tend to, as in, in my experience as a collective, as a teacher, we tend to do everything at a million miles an hour we don't pause well no, <laughs> you know? and that's part of the so you know the egg on the spoon and the limited time to get from point a to point b but um yeah they and you're right you make a really good point about and that goes back to the administration and the culture that they're creating that teachers feel they are allowed to to pause and it's okay They've got support if we're focusing on something that isn't within the realms of the normal school day, you know. So having that permission and knowing you're not going to be judged or, um, you know, thought poorly of or, you know, as a less effective teacher because is is so important for your confidence and, and yeah, yeah, your calmness and everything, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, I am admittedly a teacher who's always running 
three to five minutes late. And, you know, and especially, especially in the morning, one of the things I write about in the book is what I call schmooze sessions, which is um, when your kids are coming in first thing in the morning um, and you're, you're seeing them come in. For me, it's really important to take the time to look, you know, almost to take their pulse. You know, you can take their pulse by they, just the look in their eyes, many of the kids and the way that they're standing. And so, you know, I do run, you know, I tend to run late in the mornings just because in that those minutes when you're even just walking them up the stairs and you're saying to them, you know, I remember you told me you were going to see your bro- your stepbrother last night. How did that go? Oh, do you believe that actually happened? And or you see another kid and you say, oh, you weren't here yesterday. We missed you. I'm so glad you're back. And you're just schmoozing with them because then when you get them to the classroom, then they feel I am loved. I am safe. Even if you didn't talk to them, even if they only heard you say something kind to someone else and they think, ah, I'm in a safe space, you know. Yep. But, yeah, you have to take that chance that you're you're prioritizing that. Um, over over getting from here to there to point A to point B, you know, yeah. it will make you they could make you a little bit late. No, that's lovely, Jenna, and it's such a uh, it's such a nice core regulatory moment. I think you know that you have with the students. And I was thinking about the example of, you know, you calling the administrator or the administrator writing nice things. And that's a nice core regulatory moment for the teachers themselves, um, which is kind of what you need before you can get into being able to self-regulate in a way. Um, but I was I was wanting to ask you about that. Did you have any practical tips around how teachers can sort of self-regulate um, in the classroom? Yes, yes. I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> uh, no, just because it, it's it's... I think for teachers, we need, we need those concrete strategies. We need those, you know, we need those little sort of things you can do in the moment, um, which I like really tried to put in this book. Like I tried to pack this, the new book with those strategies. Okay. So here's a couple that you can do. Um, So if you're in a moment where you feel like you're about to lose it on a kid. So here are some ideas that I can, that have worked that I can think of and that I've read about. One of, one of my favorite ones is, to if you're if you're thinking about um, just bringing things down, slowing things down, what I used to do with my kids is I would take my arms. It's hard to see this, but I would take my arms out like this and we would do four slow breaths and we would bring our arms up. So it would kind of up and down in and out. So and we would do it together four times. They, like, we call it like, take four before. Here's another, here's another like really crazy one that you would never think about. If you, um, if you hang up a picture of someone that you look up to and you keep it up in your classroom. So in my classroom, I had a picture of my grandfather hanging on the wall. Um, and because he was an immigrant and I was teaching them about Ellis Island and the history of immigrants. Anyway, I kept my grandfather's picture up and in moments where I wanted to, where I wanted to lose that at a kid, or I could feel I was losing it, I could see my grandfather looking at me, and it just changed my, just changed in the moment. Um, and I felt I tried to just do my best. You know, here's another really fun one. You can, when you feel things building, 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 ask the kids for a redo. You know, say to them, "Can I have a redo on that moment?" Or would you like a redo? Or tell that for the little kid, you can say, I'm what's wind the hands back on the clock a little bit. They love that. Um, 
try doing the opposite of what you want to do. If you feel like you're speeding around the classroom and you're moving super fast, try to move super slow in that moment. If you feel like you want to yell, whisper. There's a, there's a bunch of tricks, but there's some. That's great. Thanks. That's really great. Really practical. Thanks, Joanna. It reminded me of another teacher who spoke to who was talking about having a picture of a holiday he had been on, I think, <laughs> up somewhere in the classroom where he'd, he'd give him perspective on whatever it is that's happening in the moment with the student. And, and so. uh, yeah, you know, that reminds me, actually, I had a teacher friend. She told me that she had uh, taught her students about uh, Martin Luther King and the kids connected so much with him that they hung up a picture of Martin Luther King in a corner. And when a kid felt like he was going to melt down, she would say to him, you want to go talk to Martin? And the kid would find their way over there and, you know, tearfully explain what had been happening and then come back. But they felt that it was their their safe, their safe space. Wow, that's a really nice moment. <laughs> Having yeah. Martin looking over all of us, I think that's quite a nice way to think about it. Um, can you talk to uh, mindfulness a little bit, Joanna? Um, there, there's, you know, there's a lot of chat about mindfulness, and and sometimes I think often people feel like it's such a big practice that takes up so much time and, and energy. How? What would be your ideas about how teachers can practice mindfulness? You know, in, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be anything that takes up a large amount of time. It can be doing the thing that you were doing more slowly. Um, you know, you had asked actually about ways to just regulate in the moment. Um, something sort of magical happens when you slow down as a teacher and you mindfully um, compose your words or you write what you're writing on the blackboard more slowly. But with the kids, other things that you can do is you can have them take one minute in the middle of the class to do something as slowly and mindfully as they can. So for example, I've, um, I've done one minute of mindfulness just to pick up your cup or your pencil. So instead of here's, I don't know if you could see it here, but instead of, you know, an entire minute, I call this like a one minute calm down challenge of, you know, feeling your hands moving through the air towards the glass, feeling the temperature of the glass and having the kids actually just spend a minute, even if it's picking up a pencil, but that takes an entire minute. Um, I do the I do I mean I do lots of in the moment things with the kids. One of the things I do is bloom and bud. Is this answering your question, or were you asking me a, more generally about mindfulness? No, 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 not at all. Go for it. It's great. Um, so a little practice, super easy, is the idea of like your hands being like a flower, and so it would be we just this, this is literally could be four breaths. So you're breathing in and your hands are opening up, like a flower would open up. And then out. Or you could reverse that. And I find four is a magic number for me, um, usually after four breaths. Um, 
so just in these sort of like in in the moment um mindfulness practices don't take up a lot of time for sure and they just you know they just change the the vibe in the room the chime anything with the chime um i could go on and on but no it doesn't have to take up a lot of time and it's just transformative yeah, no, I think that's great. I, I had a couple of thoughts, actually. Um, it reminded me of, of a time when we used to run um, groups with, you know, parents and carers. And, and often we would do the mindfulness activities at the start and we would do it with them. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just as much for the teacher as it was for everyone else. And it was a really, you know, like a, a smart little way of getting in a little bit, putting into yourself as much as you're putting into um, others as well I think um, and, and I think there's something about you know doing it a few times to be able to actually see the value of it I think Joanna you know I think people will start you know and I can almost hear some people just cringing at the thought of you know doing this with kids it's just not me this is not what I do that sounds a bit mushy and whatnot but but there's something really powerful actually doing it you know doing it a few times and kind of seeing the benefits of it so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that yeah oh I was going to say and also sharing the science of it you know I had a, a student uh recently who had been a, through a lot in his life this is a this was kind of like a tough street kid um but when we introduced mindfulness in my classroom and we talked about the science of it first and um we started to practice just a little bit every day um, it was it was amazing to me that this kid, you know, you think like, oh, the kids aren't going to be able to sit still. Oh, they're going to say this is silly. It was amazing to me that these kids who need it so much just dived into it. You know, I was going to just mention another practice talking about since we've been talking about like the time pressure that teachers feel. Um, something that I like to do with teachers is when we do our workshops, I like to have everyone stand up and then I tell them, look. What we're going to do is we're going to take an entire moment for you to walk. And I want you to have the intention to get from where you are to about three feet away. And just feel, you know, just do mindful walking. But what comes up for us and for all of us teachers is we feel like we have to get to that spot. So what we try to do is we try to say to ourselves in each moment, I have arrived I have arrived. I have already arrived. Um, and I think that's just just key for us teachers in every moment to feel that we've already arrived and that that emails that we haven't answered and assessments we haven't done, they will always be there. But we have already arrived. We've already done everything that we needed to do. Um, and it's, it's OK. And it's still time to relax regardless. Fantastic. Thanks, Joanna. And I think one of the things that's really powerful about what you're saying is this idea that, you know, we talk about teacher self-care and it just feels like another thing that you have to do on top of your already loaded <laughs> kind of to-do list. And I think one of the things that you're actually talking about is that the way you engage in the work, the way you are in school is a, such an important part of that self-care kind of piece, really, that taking that time for that mindfulness, taking that time for getting support, get, you know, taking the time to be thoughtful about things um, is such an important part of, you know, taking care of yourself while you're at work as well. 
As well, and I would also say, you know, the piece that I see really um, that has been transformative for me is really just um, allowing yourself to experience the joy of being with the children. I was I was talking with a new teacher the other day who was asking for advice, and I I mean. I, there's so many, there's so many, I just, you know, 200, I don't know how many pages of advice here on what to do if you're a new teacher. But um, what I think supersedes all that is going in every day and your goal being to enjoy yourself, to enjoy yourself and the magic of being with these kids and being present with them and being grateful for the opportunity that you have to influence these young minds and these young personalities and enjoying it. <laughs> Cause then the kids will enjoy too. And then the kids will relax and then they'll feel safe. Thanks, Shana. I'd love to hear Kay's thoughts on this because recently there's a real move in um, the schooling system here where there, there's a real move to have what we call engagement officers <laughs> in schools. And I, and I was sort of curious, well, what, what are engagement officers? And, and essentially they're people who want to get students more sort of engaged in the work. And it's such a reaction to how scripted the kind of curriculums become that there's such a like a loss of joy and awe and wonder and and you know it's not just for the kids like just from what you're saying it it's kind of felt by the teachers too where it's not fun anymore <laughs> you know like it's not the the kind of creativity is sort of lost in it and I so I think you're making a really like important point about kind of bringing some of that back and and even if it's not in the curriculum even in kind of the relationship with the students. Well, you know, the other the, the other piece of that is, you know, um, is letting the kids co-create what happens in the classroom, because then everyone is alive and everyone is present in that moment. You know, I was reading um, I, I was I was looking at uh, I was creating a list of things that teachers could do to engage kids this first couple of weeks. And but to get to really know them, you know, one that I really loved was I read about these um, student led teacher PDs, professional development PDs. And so what these PDs are, the teachers say to the kids, hey, look, we're, we have to teach such and such a thing this week. We have to teach. Um, let's see. We have to teach the, um, I'm going to say like the American Civil War. We have to teach um, the quadratic formula. We want to know from you, what would make this engaging for you? What are your ideas? And then the, the students teach the teachers and teachers say, thank you. We had no idea that that's how you would like to learn. We had no idea that this example or this cultural phenomenon would really bring the kids into the equation. And now you have the teacher and the student together creating this experience that we're both engaged in. Absolutely. And if, if I've learned one thing, it's that if you're going to make sure you understand something, you've got to learn how to teach it. I think So uh, that's how you really you have your head around things excellent well thank you joanna it sounds like your book was released on the 19th of august and um it sounds like it's got a lot, plenty of practical strategies in it um so we'll definitely put up links um for that on our website but um i would just wanted to um, finish up by asking you about what you're currently curious about in your work um you know, I work with, I actually just transitioned to being an English as a second language teacher. 
And yep, yep. And um, here in the United States right now, we're having um, we're having um, an influx of immigrants coming from um, places in South and Central America that have been traumatized. Um, and I'm interested in what sort of um, supports would be most helpful for trauma impacted immigrant students. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's Kai and I were just having a meeting this week about doing some seminars around that. We were, and Um, colleagues colleagues of mine in Brisbane are doing a research project on refugee children's transition from kindy to to big school and what helps them to do that most successfully. I did present it at the trauma-sensitive school conferences, and, you know, it was – it was really helpful to think about the trauma, you know, the, the trauma that these that the immigrant students are experiencing as being trauma in the whole in the home country, the trauma of the journey, and then here at least the trauma, well, the trauma of the new country, the, the acclimating to the new country, and here where we have um, ICE trying to deport a lot of the kids, uh, it's a continuing trauma for the kids even being in schools and wondering if their parents are being deported while they're at um, while they're in school. Right, great to be able to reach out to all the different kind of groups of vulnerable kids, I think, that need our help. And it's great to see the trauma-informed paradigm being able to be inclusive of um, these kids as well. Thank you, Joanna. This was really great. Um, Did you have any contact information or other ways in which people can kind of follow your work? Sure, sure, sure. I am on Instagram, Toolbox for Teachers. I have lots of content videos of me modeling a lot of the strategies, actually, um, from the book and on Facebook and on my website, um, toolboxforteachers.org. Great. And we'll get Thank those you. links up um, with the um, yeah podcast episode as well on our website. Thank you, Joanna. That was really great, really practical and, and really an area that I think is so important with teachers thinking about themselves and making that kind of systemic connections to the students, but people above them as well and the systems in which we operate in. So thank you very much. I hope we can keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Thanks, Joanna. Thank you so much. That was our interview with Joanna Schwartz. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's tipbs.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us with a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.